Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hello, my name is Dylan Arvella. I am a supporter of Australia through my place of birth, while I am a supporter of Portugal through the place of birth of my father. I'll be mainly talking about Portugal uh, on th- on this show and throughout the tournament. You can find me on Twitter at Dylan Arvella. Hi, I'm Jamie Smith. I support Burnley and follow England somewhat begrudgingly. I'm a football journalist covering the World Cup in its entirely in its entirety, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Smith Sport. Hello, I'm uh, Thomas Negren. I write about Liverpool at uh, lfcsv.se, but uh, during the World Cup, I will be representing Sweden. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. I won't be talking about anyone because somehow, despite having dual allegiances to the United States and Netherlands, I have no one representing me at this World Cup. Uh, Enough about that disappointment, though. We will jump right into some topics. Uh, Obviously, uh, the team news has been known, I believe, since it was June 4th was the final date uh, to know everyone's squads. I was just curious to get your guys' takes on uh, who you think the biggest snub is that isn't making it to the tournament on the whole and the biggest snub for your country individually. Uh, We'll lead in with you, Dylan. So on the tournament as a whole, I've got the three names that I have down is Leroy Sane, Maro Akadi, and Jack Wilshere. Obviously, Leroy Sane has had a phenomenal season for Manchester City, and obviously Germany have a wealth of talent, but it was very surprising to see the the young wide man sort of miss out in that sense. Mario Cardi has been banging goals for, for some time now, and I understand that Argentina have an embarrassment of riches up front, but I'm surprised he wasn't able to uh, get the cut there. And Jack Wilshere... Um, he seems to be a bit of a Marmite sort of a character. You love him, you hate him. Quite a big fan, and especially considering that England don't really have a similar sort of player um, in that squad that can sort of unlock a defence. I was surprised that he didn't get uh, the look uh, look in there. As for Portugal, um, there's been a lot of turnover from the 2016 squad that, of course, won the European Championship and probably the um, not surprise, not a huge surprise because he has been uh, starting to be phased out of the uh, national setup. But Nani is is probably the big the big name that will be missing from the World Cup. The 31 year old, he is the third highest capped uh, Portuguese player, 112 caps. His last goal came in the Confederations Cup last year. Um, wasn't a regular fixture for Lazio this season on loan from Valencia. Um, and it's sort of his, his career has sort of run parallel with Cristiano Ronaldo's. And, of course, he's still the, the captain of the side. So seeing Nani fall away um, for, and not be selected is probably – Probably the biggest surprise in the sense that it probably brings an end to a fairly illustrious international career. Yeah, Jamie, for England, uh, who stuck out for you? And and do you kind of mimic those uh, thoughts on the other big names? Yeah, I think Sané is obviously the one that got so much attention. But I think it was was quite interesting in the wake of Wacky Worth announcing his squad that quite a few people who follow German football in detail basically explain that Sané hasn't really done it for Germany. Julian Brandt, who most people think is probably the one who was maybe fortunate to get that spot, he's performed to a higher standard, essentially for his country, and fits the way that, that Löw wants to play. So while Sané is an outstanding talent, it doesn't seem like he really fits into the Germany that has been built over the last decade with Löw in charge. And you've got to look at his record in charge. It's so good he's probably within his rights to make a big call like this. Um, For England, we've already mentioned Jack Wilshere. I like Jack Wilshere a lot. I think his injury record has has robbed England of a very, very talented player, to be honest. Um, This season, he has played a lot more football than he has in the last few seasons, and I thought he was going to force his way back in. But in March, he was injured when he was named in the squad, and I think that probably drew a line under his name for Gareth Southgate, the fact that He'd given him that chance again and then he was injured and unable to take it. Um, I do think that Wilshire's creativity will be, maybe be missed. 
However, again, similar to Sammy, he maybe doesn't fit into the style that the manager wants to play. Southgate has decided that he wants to play quite a slow and deliberate style on the ball. I think Wilshire likes to get on the ball and try and make things happen and speed it up. It doesn't seem to, to quite fit in. Whether England do miss a player like that who can unlock a deep playing defence, particularly in the early games against Tunisia and Panama, where you would expect it to be England on top against the defence that sat back, a player like Wilshire might have been useful to try and unlock the door. So it remains to be seen whether that was a call that works out or not. The other big one from England's point of view was Joe Hart. Um, from a personal point of view, as someone who supports Burnley, absolutely thrilled to see Nick Pope get the nod, even though it looks like he's going as third choice. For a long time, it, thought, it, it looked like Joe Hart was going to go, even though he wasn't going to play. The fact that Southgate has left him out, I think, is a very positive move. There was a lot of talk about Joe Hart's experience being useful. Let's be real, his experience with England is mainly of not being good enough. So it, mm. it seemed a bit pointless to me. You might as well take someone like Nick Pope, who is on the rise, and might be a number one at a future tournament. You never know. He's had a fantastic season. For me, again, someone who's a bit biased, but of the three that are in the squad, him, Jordan Pickford and Jack Butland, he had the best season of the three. Um, and I would argue that he should probably start for England. But it's still a massive thing that he wasn't playing for Burnley a year ago. He got his chance because of an injury for Tom Heaton. And now he's going to the World Cup with England. It's absolutely fantastic for him. Um, and for Joe Hart, two seasons at, at Manchester City where he's not wanted. Loan spells haven't worked out. He's not gone to the World Cup. What will have been a very promising goalkeeping career has completely fallen apart. Yeah, and Thomas, uh, who, who were kind of your, your shock exclusions? Well, if you look at the World Cup as a whole, it's hard to not mention <clears throat> Leroy Sané in Germany, of course. But I don't know if I have so much to add to what's been said already. He's a, he's a magnificent player and what he's done for City this year is uh, impressive. But Germany has a great team without him and Jogi Löw, well, he has the results to back it up. So I don't, I don't think that will affect Germany very much. Uh, but if you look at Sweden, the, the talking point around our team for the last six months has, of course, been if Slatan Ibrahimovic will play or not. But uh, after he said no, to, after he said that he, he would stay out of the national team, uh, there hasn't been many surprises. Maybe it was a bit surprising to see Ken Seema from uh, Östersund be left out because uh, there aren't many game-changing players in our squad and he could have been one of them. But uh, he plays in Allsvenskan, the Swedish league for Östersund, who's now a mid-table team. He made a few good games against Arsenal in the Europa League, but that wasn't a very interested Arsenal that he played, so I don't think it's the same when it comes to a World Cup. Sweden is... Uh, our squad is very hard-working, and there are quite a few technically gifted players. We have Emil Forsberg on the left, and uh, he is the guy who has to make it for us. Uh, Jan Andersson shows to... To bring Marcus Rodian from uh, Crotona instead of Ken Siema. And Rodian is another hard-working player. So uh, I think that says a lot about the way Sweden will go into this uh, championship. It won't be fun to watch, but uh, it will be 11 hard-working players. And uh, then uh, Marcus Rodian is a better fit than uh, Ken Siema. Gotcha. All right. Uh, well, you guys obviously mentioned Leroy Sané and him missing from the Germany squad. And as Thomas said, that may not hurt them so much in the long run. Uh, they seem to be favorites at the moment. Do you guys agree with that? Or is there somebody else that you think is going to walk away with the title at the end of the tournament? Of course, there's a, there's a number of names that are all going to be banded about the likes of um, Germany, Brazil. Uh, but the, the the team that I'm probably going to have a bit of money on will be Spain, the world number 10 at the moment. They're currently third favourite, six, 650 pay, paying to win the competition. Under, under Julian Lopetegui, I've been really impressed with how he has managed to sort of bring through a lot of young players. Obviously, fantastic young players to bring through the likes of Isco, Asensio and whatnot. I feel they have... Obviously, with the best sides, everyone can say, oh, they've got an embarrassment of riches right across this park, most complete squad. But I I really feel that they have, for one, the best goalkeeper in the world, probably the best back line. Of course, an amazing midfield. They've probably had the best midfield for the last 10 years. But you look at it now and you've got the likes of the aforementioned Isco coming through, Asensio coming through. So, so, So dynamic, really. And... 
while there is question marks over who will who will score the goals in in the sense of a, an out and out striker, you've got the likes of Diego Costa, uh, Iago Aspas, who actually scored in their their last their last match against uh, Tunisia. Uh, they might only need two or three goals in the whole tournament um, from the from their number nine. So for mine, Spain Spain looked to be the team for the team to beat. Yeah, I like Spain's chances a lot. I think. The problem with Spain is maybe that you just don't know what you're going to get. Um, before they had that incredible run in major tournaments, they had an awful run at World Cups and, and European Championships, and it seemed like they'd found a formula that worked until the last couple where they've been absolutely atrocious. So, yeah, it's, it's really difficult to know what to expect from Spain. I think on paper they've maybe got the strongest team. Players like Marco Asensio, who I think is... A phenomenal talent might not even start games as a super sub. Someone like Asensio is probably the best in the business. Um, for me, though, I think the bookmakers have got Germany's favourites, and I think they probably are going to be the team to beat. Like I've mentioned earlier, Jogi Löw's got a fantastic record at these tournaments. Germany, a winning machine, essentially. Uh, the only doubt over there maybe is Manuel Neuer, who's obviously had all those injury problems over last season. He's barely played, um, only made his comeback from injury after being out since September recently. So perhaps that's a weakness that can be exploited throughout the rest of the squad. There's just so much depth and so much talent in every single position. Um, I think a player like Thomas Muller, who hasn't been in great form for Bayern Munich. He seems to come alive at World Cups for Germany. I think he's got big potential to to light up the tournament. And Germany just seemed to find a way to get the job done. So I'd be very surprised if they don't go a long way, certainly to the semi-finals. And I think they're favourites for a reason, essentially. Yeah, I think uh, Germany is uh, one of the favourites as well. They have a great team with uh, quality players in every position. Maybe they're maybe don't have the the score like they had in the past years with the Klose and the, before that they had Bierhoff and the Klinsmann. I can't see that they have a uh, they have a striker with that quality in this squad. But of course, Thomas Müller will score. He always does. So they will get the goals that they need. If you look at the other teams, I think that France can be an outsider. Uh, maybe they lack a bit of quality in the. Defense, but if you look at the attacking options, there are some amazing players with uh, Mbappé and Griezmann and uh, Fekir. If his uh, knee can make the what make it through the World Cup, <laughs> uh, so I think that France is an outsider, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them go very far in the tournament. They were in Sweden's qualification group, and uh, even though we we beat them, they were uh, they showed that they are a really good side. So. Maybe France is my team to bet on, apart from uh, Germany. Yeah, obviously Spain, Germany, and France all very, very good. And Jamie, you mentioned depth. All, all three of those nations certainly have it um, off of the bench as well as in their first 11. Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with questions for each of uh, the, the guests on the show. All right, and we are back. Uh, Dylan, we'll start with you. As you said in your intro, you are going to be uh, discussing Portugal with us on this show. Um, it's easy for people to think of Portugal as kind of the Ronaldo show and then kind of 10 other guys. So Ronaldo to the side, how does this Portuguese side, which you mentioned has had a lot of turnover, compare to past iterations? Well, there's some quite optimism uh, regarding the Portugal squad for the World Cup. When I was on during the 2016 Euros, especially in the group stage, I spoke a lot about how uh, this this side wasn't prepared to win the the European Championship, and obviously everyone knows how that went. However, I was more confident with um, 2018 and 2020, g- given the the amount of young players that uh, were coming through. And you look at the squad. And there's a lot of there's a lot of players under the age of 25 that are really starting to get their careers going. You look at Giancarlo Gides, Andre Silva. Andre Silva struggled a bit with AC Milan this season, but he's a phenomenal striker. Gelson Martins, uh, Bruno Bruno Fernandez has had has probably been the best player in Portugal this season for Sporting Lisbon. And you've got you've got some young players like Ruben Diaz is probably a surprise inclusion into the Portugal squad, a centre back from Benfica, and potentially this is 
the best squad in terms of depth since the 2002 World Cup, which had a phenomenal group of players like Luis Figo in his prime, uh, Rui Costa in his prime, uh, Corto. But that side was bundled out in the group stage. So um, whether that's a, a an omen for this um, for this tournament, I'm not too sure. But the, the big concern regarding the Portugal side going going into this World Cup is the age of the main defenders. Um, of course, def- our defence was the key to winning the 2016 Euros. And you look at the centre-back partnerships, they're, they're, they're the same players. Pepe, who's now on to Besiktas, he's 35 years old now. Jose Font, 34 years old, he's playing in the Chinese Super League. Most people assumed that when he moved to China, his, that would be the end of his uh, career. But Santos has... Has, has backed him, backed his man, and it looks like Pepe and Fonte will be the two starting centre-backs. And third choice, Bruno Alves. He's at Rangers these days, uh, 36 years old. Um, I question <laughs> I question whether he's up to he's up to the level of playing com- the, at this level. And really the only other difference in of the centre-back options, Ricardo Carvalho, of course, no longer... Uh, is in the in the frame as he's retired. He's, he's the main difference. And Ruben Diaz has come in. He's 21 years old and he's been pretty decent for Benfica in his uh, first real season in in top flight football. Yeah, it'll be certainly interesting uh, how Portugal do perform, especially as you say, the more talented teams tend to be the ones that go out for Portugal. Um, but uh, also, would like to note on Gelson Martins that at the last Euros, I was really interested in watching him. Um, and then all of a sudden, two years on, he's, he's a player that a lot of big clubs would certainly like to have in their side. There's certainly a player with a lot of pace that may be interesting to look out for for the neutrals, as well as obviously the Portuguese fans. Uh, you did also mention that you are currently living in Australia. What's the atmosphere like uh, there as we head into the World Cup proper? Well, with Australia, of course, uh, for anyone that's been watching it with any with any um, interest whatsoever. Bert van Marwijk, the former Netherlands coach, former Saudi Arabia coach, is now in charge. He took over for Ange Post, from Ange Postacoglu, who secured qualification. And basically, there's been a, a root and branch um, change in how this team sets up. We were playing with a through-the-back possession uh, system under Ange Postacoglu with a fairly high press, whereas... Uh, and Marvike will probably be looking to be a bit more pra- pragmatic. Um, and really, given the last friendlies, we had a 2-1 win over Hungary and a 4-0 win over a fairly depleted Czech Republic in the most recent friendlies. The, the, the mood's um, quietly optimistic. It's a very tough group. We're, we're definitely the fourth best side in it. There is a potential of sneaking third, um, uh, sne- sneaking into the the next round. Um, and there's a player by the name of, of Daniel Arzani, a 19-year-old that's really um, catching the nation by storm. And he's he's had a real breakout season. He scored against Hungary. And um, given his his sort of rise to prominence, the the international the the media coverage of it's been a bit more a bit more optimistic, and um, we can get a decent result against France in the first game. You never know. All right, uh, coming to you now, Jamie. Uh, England have always been kind of constantly both optimistic and pessimistic about their World Cup chances. How are you feeling? Is England prepared to head to Russia? Yeah, it's a strange one, this, because in England, I think England's famous for getting really carried away in the build-up to tournaments, thinking that England are going to win, even though there are countries with much better teams. The, The media always gets carried away. People start getting carried away. After the last couple, I think... Um, people have more grown to accept England's place on the world stage. It is, after all, 50 years since England won the World Cup, so we can't really be expecting to to be a contender anymore. That said, there is quite a lot of positivity about the team at the moment. There's a lot of good young players, exciting young players. Gareth Southgate, who I've not been a fan of at all, seems to have instilled confidence in the group to the extent that a player like Danny Rose, not particularly popular, I wouldn't say in a national sense, 
did an interview with the media a few days ago where he talks about his mental health issues, the fact that England have been a release for him. The fact that an elite footballer has been made to feel comfortable enough to be able to do that interview just before a World Cup mm. when he's going to be under intense pressure, I think that shows a really positive atmosphere that's been built around the team. Whether that carries over into a tournament situation where England teams in the past have been frozen under the pressure, the performance against Iceland at the last Euros showed that perfectly. They just all looked absolutely terrified of making a mistake to the extent that they all played super safe football that was never going to create anything. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of talent in the group. Obviously, Harry Kane's a lethal striker. He's, his goal-scoring rate for England isn't phenomenal at the moment, but he's a young player still. I think people forget that just because he's been in the Premier League scoring a lot of goals for the last three seasons internationally, he's still quite inexperienced. Raheem Sterling, there's been a lot of media talk around him from our tabloid newspapers who seem intent on trying to destroy Raheem Sterling, a young, successful black man. Who could say why that is? Um, but Sterling's had a phenomenal season for Manchester City. He's got a real chance to be an exciting player. So in attack, I think England have a lot of positivity going into the tournament. It's in defence where people are more reluctant to get excited because it's going to be a very inexperienced goalkeeper, whichever of the three starts. It looks like it'll be Jordan Pickford, who's proven to be error-prone at Everton this season, although his distribution suits what Gareth Southgate wants to do. And in defence, there's just not really anyone who's particularly convincing. Yeah, the the smackdowns of Raheem Sterling just perpetually are very frustrating to watch. And we did talk about back during um, uh, Harry Kane's shoulder gate um, that the media seemed to turn on him very quickly as well. And it is a strange... Uh, phenomenon uh, of the England media kind of turning on the team. Um, but you did bring up a very interesting point on how this the, the England teams have seemed to crumble under pressure of late. Uh, Tony Adams went uh, on record today basically saying that Tottenham's lack of winning experience will hurt England since there are so many uh, Tottenham players in the England squad. Do you think that's a, a concern that many will feel uh, is well-placed? I think it's possible. Um, you're probably looking at the, the team and there's going to be, what, three, four, maybe five Spurs players in the starting lineup. So it's possible that that has an impact. Um, but then there's also going to be players like Kyle Walker, who left Spurs and has proven that he can be a winner at a better team. Um, Raheem Sterling, who did the same, people said when he left Liverpool that it was a bad decision. He's gone to Manchester City and won a lot of things already. So there are players there with experience of winning. I don't think anyone really thinks that England can win the World Cup. I think, um, I was talking about this with my brother earlier, I don't think we've won a knockout game since the 2002 World Cup in any major tournament. So, yeah, to to talk about semi-finals and quarter-finals, that involves winning a knockout game. So, (laughs) um, I think if if we were to get to the quarter-finals, that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, The route to the quarters doesn't look that bad. Our group, you'd think, probably about as straightforward as we could have hoped, particularly if Belgium's the last game. If we've got six points out of the two games, you'd expect that would be enough. And then next, I think it's one of the weaker groups that England are scheduled to play in the round of 16. So the path to the quarters doesn't look too bad. Whether that, that lack of winning mentality, and you could probably put Gareth Southgate in there as well. He wasn't someone who won an awful lot as a player. Whether that has an impact... I suppose it's possible. Yeah, well, as somebody without a nation, I certainly hope the Tottenham players do well, and therefore uh, England as well. It would be lovely for that narrative to kind of stop, as it seems like it is being quite persistent. Um, Thomas, coming to you now, you mentioned uh, a very challenging group for Sweden, but you did get through a very difficult qualifying group to get there in the first place. Uh, Do you think we could kind of see a repeat of that feat again? Well, as you said, we had a we had a difficult group when we qualified for the World Cup. We were ahead of Netherlands and we played the group stage, and then we then we beat Italy in the qualification game before. So uh, we have beaten a few good teams when we've had Jan Andersson as a coach. So uh, it's not impossible for us to get a result out of the games, at least against uh, Mexico and uh, South Korea. Uh, but uh, if you look at our team, there there are uh, very limited players. Our goalkeeper Robin Olsen plays in the Danish league and he's a 
he's a decent goal goalkeeper. I don't think that uh, he would be a problem. But uh, if, you, if you look further up at the pitch, we have uh, some huge issues that we need to deal with. And that's uh, our central midfielders, I think, are the worst central midfielders, midfielders we've had since I started to watch football. We used to have players like um, Jonas Tern and Stefan Schwartz in the 90s who were uh, great European players. And uh, we had Kim Kjellström and uh, Anders Svensson in the recent years who's been uh, good in the national team. But now we have uh, Sebastian Larsson who has been playing for Hull this season. And we have um, a player called Albini Ekdal who were relegated from the Bundesliga with his team and has been injured for most of the season. So our central midfield is... Uh, it's a big problem for uh, for the Swedish team and the attacking position as well. Everything in the front has been built around Slatan in the past ten years, and when he when he is not when he's not in this team, we don't have players to score. We've played two games now before this World Cup against Denmark, and uh, yesterday we played Peru, and both games have uh, ended nil nil without us creating a decent uh, goal scoring chance. So. I don't think we score many goals. We need to rely on our defense if we want to get to the group stage. Uh, the first game is, of course, very important against South Korea. We need to win that one to have a decent shot. Uh, but um, it's a success for Sweden to be in this World Cup. I don't think that anyone expected us to go this go to this tournament. If you looked at the group we were in in the qualification, and uh, if you think about that, Jan Andersson is uh, is our new is the new coach of Sweden, and. Uh, a lot of players quit the national team uh, when he started. And I think we lost about 400 caps from the players who ended their career in the national team. So there are many new players in this in this team, but um, the strength of this team is that they, they work together. They're very strong uh, as a team, and that is something that we have to rely on if we want to, to get any further in this tournament. And, of course, Emil Forsberg is uh, our most important player because... Uh, He's the one who can create chances going forward. But his, uh, his season at uh, Leipzig hasn't been as good as the last one. So I'm a bit worried that uh, it will, that Sweden will be a quite boring team to, to watch. It's not like we were entertaining to watch when we beat Italy. But uh, against a team like South Korea and also against Mexico, I think that we need to, we need to have some, some offensive play if we if you want to get the points. That's interesting that you talk about kind of that, that lack of goal, of goal scoring, because I wanted to ask you about Marcus Berg, who did score eight goals in 11 matches during qualifying. Uh, obviously knows Latam, but could Berg kind of fire you there? It yeah. sounds like you're thinking maybe not. Yeah. Uh, he he has to. He, is, he always surprises me uh, when he plays in national because he's not that, he's not a very good player, but he's good at finding the, the right... Uh, the, the right spaces in the near the goal so that he can get some chances and score goals. And he was very good when we qualified, and he need to be that when the tournament starts as well. Uh, it's uh, up to Emil Forsberg to give Marcus Barry the ball when he's uh, close to the goal because he can score, of course. He, but he plays for uh, Al-Hilal. I think it's in Saudi Arabia or uh, somewhere around that area. So it's hard to know what uh, his... Uh, what ability he has nowadays. Uh, I would rather see him play in, in Europe for the tempo and so on. But um, yeah, he needs to score. And he, of course, he is our best striker. Ola Toivonen, well, he is extremely limited striker. <laughs> so I don't think he will score many goals. And uh, Jon Gudette, yeah, his uh, career hasn't been what we hoped. He was, a, he was a star when he was a teenager playing for Manchester City and, and their youth squads and uh, but after that, he hasn't, uh, he hasn't taken the steps that he needed. So it's up to Marcus Bayer to score the goals. And if, if we are going to score some goals, I think it's him. All right, thanks, guys, for all of those thoughts. Now we're going to head into Player Watch. Uh, and we're going to start with kind of who, who we think will be the stars of the tournament. Uh, most notably, who do you think will win the Golden Boot and who will pick up the Golden Glove Award? Uh, we'll lead in with you again, Dylan. So the name that I've got down for Golden Boot is 26-year-old Isco. I, I mentioned Spain to win the tournament, so I'm probably I've, I'm feeling of. I always feel 
feel like the person that wins the golden boot should probably be in the side that um, wins the tournament. Of course, not the case in the last one with James Rodriguez. I just think that he seems to be Iniesta reinvented. He seems he's an absolutely phenomenal player, and he's shown in in the last year for Spain that he's really been able to step up for them. Uh, in a friendly against Argentina, he played played out uh, sort of out wide, and he was absolutely tremendous in a six-one win, three goals there, and in a competitive match against Italy, the, their three-nil win in qualifying, he scored two goals there, and that he was more more central in a sort of a false nine role there. And I think that if Spain are to have a successful tournament, I can see Isco as being sort of the, the the central player in this side, especially considering that this will be Iniesta's last tournament. I can see it as I can see um, a potential sim, a symbolic passing of the baton over to Isco, who who's my tip to have an absolutely an absolutely sensational tournament. Forgot for Golden Glove. I said it earlier. The best goalkeeper in the tournament, David De Gea, and my my long shot. My long shot is uh, Matt Ryan, the Brighton goalkeeper, and of course, his soccer is goalkeeper. If Australia can somehow manage to get out of the group and even dare I say it, any further than the round of sixteen, he's got to be. He's got to, he's got to win the Golden Glove because he probably would have made about fifty saves by that stage. <laughs> Jamie. Yeah, I think um, the correlation between winners and golden boot, I don't think it's always as, as strong as you would think. Um, but I do think Germany is going to go a long way. And although his goal scoring seems to have dipped a bit in the last couple of seasons for Bayern, I think Thomas Muller, proven goal scorer, this sort of tournament, he scored five, I think, at the last World Cup. He always seems to turn up for these moments. So I think he's certainly going to be in the conversation. Um it's also incredible, really, that we've not mentioned Leo Messi yet. Argentina, obviously, highly reliant on Leo Messi. And I think it does have the potential to be his tournament in the sort of similar vein to Maradona at Mexico 86 and sort of just dominate it in a similar way. So I think Muller is my sort of head pick in the, I think, Germany at going to do extremely well and he's the most likely player to score for them but also I've got a sneaky feeling that Messi knowing that it's probably going to be his last World Cup having gone through all that disappointment with Argentina in major finals before I think he's got a chance to just drag his team all the way through by sheer force of will and personality and the hat-trick he scored against Ecuador to get Argentina to, to the World Cup could be a sign of what's to come in terms of Golden Glove I think this one's a really difficult one to call. You can never tell how this tournament's going to go. I think in the group stage, there's a lot of goalkeepers who aren't that great. So there could be some one-sided matches, particularly between the sort of powerhouses of Europe and South America and then the lesser lights. I think it stands to reason that the Golden Glove winner will come from either the winning country or someone who gets to the semi-finals. So I'm going to stick with Germany for that and go for Manuel Neuer, despite all the injuries. I think he's a, an elite goalkeeper behind a pretty solid defence. I don't think Germany is going to concede a lot of goals at all. Yeah, and Thomas, who are your favourites for these awards? Well, if you look at the, the Golden Boot Award, I think that uh, Brazil is going at least to the semi-finals. And I think that Neymar will have a great World Cup because uh, uh, the last World Cup didn't end the way he wanted with the injury ahead of the semi-final and then the game against Germany. So I think that Neymar is really looking forward to this competition and will score a lot of goals early on at the group stage and they're in the first game after the group stage they play the the team who is second in our group so he will probably play Sweden or Mexico in that game so maybe he will have scored about four or five goals before the quarterfinal so I think that Neymar is uh, my my bet at the Golden Boot Award maybe Griezmann in uh, France I think he will score a lot of goals as well. But um, I think that Neymar is one of the players who is looking forward most to this World Cup, thinking of what happened during the end of the last World Cup in Brazil. So he's my bet at the Golden Boot. And if you look at the Golden Glove, it's hard not to mention uh, David Gea. He's um, 
probably the best goalkeeper in the world and uh, Spain is, is there will play for a long while in this World Cup and he would make a lot of saves. So I think that he is uh, my favorite. Maybe Alisson in uh, Brazil. I, I think I say that most because I'm really looking forward to see him because um, there are a lot of talking, a lot of the speaking about that him he's going to Liverpool after the World Cup. So it will be fun to see him and I would really like him to win the Golden Glove. So, but uh, my main pick is uh, De Gea. He, we've seen what he can do for Manchester United during the last year, so he will he will make a lot of saves for Spain in this World Cup. Yeah, as Dylan mentioned, uh, James Rodriguez at the last tournament was the the breakout player. Who do we think that could be uh, here in Russia 2018? From a Portuguese perspective, I think if if Portugal are, to have, are going to have a successful tournament, I think the breakout star will be Giancarlo Gires. He's he was with Valencia this season after loaned out from PSG where where it simply didn't work for him um, after a successful season at Benfica. But he's been really really good for Valencia this season, playing out wide. For Portugal though, he was he was quoted in saying that he's been training specifically to play as a striker, and he'll probably be the first choice striker as Andre Silva has perhaps gone a bit out of favour. And against Algeria in the last friendly, he scored two two pretty fantastic goals and he seems to have a really good partnership with Cristiano Ronaldo and I think he'll do a lot of the doggy work for for Ronaldo in this tournament. But in saying that, I still think that he has the ability to score to keep the goals coming for the Portuguese. He's, he's a f- phenomenal player. He's still on PSG's books and if, if he is to have a, a strong tournament, um, I would actually see him being a starter for PSG next season. That would certainly be an impressive feat. Do you think he'll also be the uh, kind of breakout star of the whole tournament? Um, just just off the top of my head, really, I, a player that I'm looking forward to seeing how he goes is Serge Milinkovic-Savage, uh, the Serbian midfielder, of course, at Lazio. A lot of speculation about where he will go this summer. Manchester United are heavily linked to him. Real Madrid are heavy, heavily linked to him. And I think if if... If Serbia get out of their group, I think he's going to be the key man for them, and I could see him being being. He's he's already for people who watch football, he's already a star. But I think that his 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 transfer value could skyrocket. They're talking about 150 million uh, for him at the moment. You could see him pushing into Neymar money if if he has a if he has a strong World Cup because that's what World Cups do to. To transfer fees, and I think that a strong a strong performance for him would be mean a strong tournament for him would um, see me categorise him as a, a breakout star. It's it's a tricky on this, isn't it? Because I think anyone who plays in in sort of for anyone who plays for a big European club already, everyone pretty much knows about them. I think it's unusual for someone like Hamas Rodriguez to be in a bit of a footballing backwater and then explode on, on the world scene at, at World Cup. So I'm not sure there'll be something as dramatic as that. Um, to continue my bias from talking about Nick Pope earlier, I want to throw in the only other Burnley player who's going to the World Cup. I think Iceland are going to surprise some people. I think they're in a, a really open group. It's a tough group, but it's an open group. They could get out of that group. And our winger, Johan Gudmundsson, had a fantastic season in the Premier League. He's, along with Gilfie Sigurdsson, Iceland's main creative threat. I think they'll rely on his delivery from the wings a lot. They'll put a lot of crosses into the box and a lot of them will come from him. Um, they even let him take some of the corners in some of the, some of the friendlies building up to the game. So, yeah, I think he's got a chance to, to really sort of announce himself to, to people who maybe don't follow Burnley as closely as I do. In terms of from um, one of the major nations, I've already mentioned him, but I really love Marco Asensio. I think he's already a star, really. He's obviously scored in a Champions League final. It's not like he's a secret, but he's probably not going to start for Spain to start with, but he's such an asset off the bench. I think in tight games towards the end of the tournament, Asensio's the sort of player who can come on and really make the difference. And this could be the tournament where he comes of age a little bit and really forces his way into the thinking of 
whoever is the next Real Madrid coach because they've got quite an aging attack really at Madrid now. Ronaldo Benzema getting on a bit. Bale's questions over whether he's going to be there next season. Asensio's the sort of player that Madrid can be building around for the future and I think he can have a really good World Cup for Spain. Uh, well, if you look at um, the tournament as a whole, I think this is, I'm really looking forward to see uh, Timo Werner in uh, Germany. I haven't seen much of him before this World Cup, but I've read that he's a very talented striker and uh, he plays with uh, Emil Forsberg in, uh, in Leipzig and uh, there are talks about him going to a bigger club after the World Cup. If he starts as a striker for Germany, he will score. So uh, it will be interesting to see if he has what it takes to fill the boots of um, Miroslav Klose as a striker for Germany. Uh, I had written down Milinkovic Savic as well. I am really looking forward to seeing him at, at the big stage. Uh, he will probably leave Lazio after this season and uh, how much it was going to cost depends a lot on how well he will do at this World Cup. I think they have quite an easy groups, so um, they will probably be at the knockout stage and then Milinkovic Savic has, uh, has a chance to really shine. Uh, if you look at it, uh, if you look at Sweden's squad, there aren't uh, there aren't many probably pro- many players who can be a breakout star. But uh, I really like Ludwig Augustinsson, who plays as a left back for Sweden. He is um, already a lot better than Martin Olsson, who played there before him. So um, I think that he can be the breakout star for Sweden. He is quite smart in the defense. He has great crosses, and he has been doing really well since he left. Al-Svenskan a few years ago. He has played for Werder Bremen this season and I think that he might be ready for an even bigger club after the World Cup. And if he, if he plays the way he has done for the past year in in national team, I think he, we will see him in um, maybe Premier League next season. I just want to um, include someone before before we move on to the next segment that I'll, I'll it'd be i will probably lose my Australian citizenship if I didn't mention him. Daniel Arzani, I mentioned, I touched on him a bit earlier. Uh, the 19-year-old has really, he's had a breakthrough through season with, with Melbourne City this, this year. He actually made his debut, I believe, in about December time. He's 19 years old. There was speculation about whether he'll pick Australia or Iran to play international football with. I believe he was born in Iran but moved over here when he was about th- three, four years old. And he's been he's been phenomenal for, me, for Melbourne City this season. A very skillful player that can play left wing, right wing, just behind the striker. And the hype surrounding him, to put it in a European context, is similar to that of Marcus Rashford two years ago. Of course, he came into the Manchester United side about halfway through the season played tremendously well and he he earned his international an international call up at the end of the season and similarly similar to uh Rashford he scored he scored on debut uh Rashford scored on debut against Australia in a friendly I believe that was at the stadium of Lightwell Daniel Arzani he he played his first match coming off the bench uh, against Czech Republic, and uh, a couple of nights ago, he scored his first goal against Hungary in his second cap. So, he's a really elusive player. If he can, if he can come on in any of the games this tournament and do something, I could see, I could really see him becoming Australia's first twenty million pound player because, because essentially, as many people will be aware, Melbourne City are are a feeder club for Manchester City, so there's links to. There's definitely links to bigger club, bigger clubs for young Daniel Azani. Cool. I hope everybody will keep an eye on all those players that you guys have just mentioned. Uh, we'll wrap up with match previews. We'll lead in with you again, Dylan. Uh, the Iberian Derby is going to be what starts off uh, our coverage of the matches here. Portugal versus Spain to start uh, in that group. Uh, what do you think we're going to see from this one? If it's based on what everyone has said, should be a, a fantastic one with the uh, high approval of Spain thus far in the show. Well, of course, as you mentioned, Iberian Derby, it's fourth in the world versus tenth in the world, but most people think that Spain are the team that are ranked fourth, but but of course, Portugal Portugal are the team that are fourth and Spain are tenth, but really, as most people would recognize, the rankings don't really stand for much because, as, as we've talked about in the show, Spain are a phenomenal side. Um, the Portuguese side will probably be very similar to the way to the side that lined up against Algeria a couple of days ago in that three 0 win. Um, 
our success in the last tournament was, of course, was based on our defence. So Portugal will probably be sitting back looking to counter, and I can see the uh, Giancarlo Gidej and Ronaldo being the two two men up top to really try and stretch out the Spanish defence. Um, the big question, really, about because. Fernando Santos, you, you, we, most people that are following the Portuguese team really probably know how the side's going to line up in terms of one to eleven. The only player, the only position, the only two players that are sort of vying out for that last spot is West Ham's Joao Mario and Sporting Lisbon's Bruno Fernandes. Joao Mario's a popular player under. Fernando Santos, who's he's got that attacking ability, but he's also got the real work rate to. Um, fill in, de- in defence, whereas Bruno Fernandes is probably a player that's more looking to get on the ball and play those killer passes to Girej and Ronaldo. Portugal lost their lost their first game of the last World Cup to Germany, four goals to nil, so I'm really hoping that there's no repeat of that. Um, that match, I'll take a draw here. I would take a draw here. Spain are the better side, but Portugal, they do have they do have the the talent to win this match. Fernando Santos's record in competitive matches for Portugal is tremendous. I think it's I think it's tw- about twenty twenty eight games, and only one defeat. If you don't include the penalty shootout defeat in the Confederations Cup to Chile, that's that's a pretty pretty fantastic record. And if if I'm going for a scoreline, I'm I'm going to go for one all. All right, breaking order here a little bit. Thomas will come to you next for Sweden versus South Korea. Obviously, South Korea have a lot of attacking threat. The defense, a little shaky, which fortunately for you, you mentioned uh, you, you might have trouble scoring. This is the, the defense that might not cause you those issues. Yeah, well, um, I don't know much about the South Korean team, apart from the players I've seen play in the, in the Premier League. Of course, uh, Hyung Min Son is a, a big threat to Sweden, but we have our strengths in the in the back four, so hopefully we can stop him from scoring. And if we just can get Emil Forsberg going and uh, let him do what he does best, I think we can hurt South Korea. Because if you look at the players in the back four, ev- I, I think uh, every player plays in Asian teams. And uh, I, th- I think this is a game that we have to win if we want to go through. South Korea is uh, pr- hopefully the worst team in our group because I think it's between us and South Korea. Uh, and if we want to go to the next round, we need to beat them. Uh, of course, their def- their offense is uh, is good. Jungmin Son and they have a key from uh, Swansea. They are good players and they have a few play- few more players playing in the European teams. So uh, we need to be smart when we play them. If we can uh, rely on our defense and get create a few chances, maybe we can nick a one zero or a two one win or something like that. Uh, Sweden hasn't been very good at the fir- in the first games of the World Cups for uh, quite a long time. We played nil nil against Trinidad and Tobago the last time we were in the World Cup. So my my expectations aren't very big for this one. Uh, hopefully we can uh, we can win this one because we will probably lose against Germany in the second game. So the the last game against Mexico will be deciding if we need to, if we want to go through. I'm um, I'm a bit worried about this game because here in Sweden we talk about South Korea like it's a team that we of course will beat, uh, but it, you know the teams from Asia we don't see them a lot. It's hard to say how they play. They have been doing quite good in a few World Cups before, so I'm a bit worried about this one. But I I think that uh, I think we have a good chance of winning this one. All right, and then last uh, but certainly not least, Jamie Tunisia versus England. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the play style has been much better for England recently with all these young players in there. Uh, do you think they'll kind of have the composure to be able to beat Tunisia? I think it's um, it's a tricky opener, to be honest. I think if England could choose, they'd probably rather opening as Panama, which is probably the weakest team in the group. I've seen a couple of Tunisia's pre-World Cup friendlies, and they're a good side, well-organized. They've got a goal throughout. They break quickly. They could pose England some problems. Obviously, on paper, England have players that should be better than Tunisia's, but sometimes it doesn't always work out that way. England could suffer from nerves. I think it's going to be tricky. Tunisia just held Spain the other day, didn't they? So 
I don't think they'll be overawed. Um, I think it's it's probably going to be a closer game than people anticipate. If England do win, it might be by the odd goal. Certainly not going to be a, an absolute walkover. But that said, England do have enough attacking threat that they could put a few pass juniors here if they get going. I think it does all depend on confidence and whether they freeze under the pressure, which England always seems to do at major tournaments. Um, so with that in mind, I'll sit on the fence and say it might be a score draw at one all, which will leave England sweating when it comes to the last game against Belgium, which nobody <laughs> would want at all. Marcus Rashford, a good performance in the last friendly. Do you think he, he somehow works his way into the starting lineup for the Tunisia match? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Rashford. Uh, I've always been a big fan, obviously. He, he exploded onto the scene as a teenager at Manchester United and everyone thought he was going to be the next big thing. Um, I personally think he's been mistreated, really, by Jose Mourinho in and out of the side constantly. doesn't seem to have any confidence playing for Manchester United. The fact that he immediately looked so sharp when given the chance to start um, that game the other day against a team I cannot remember. The life of me, Costa Rica, play Costa Rica in Leeds. I should remember that because I live in Leeds. Um, but yeah, I think the confidence that he showed there was absolutely fantastic. I think the issue for Rashford is that the system that Southgate seems to want to play means that of the two attacking places, it's going to be Kane and Sterling. So Rashford needs to force Southgate into changing his tactical plan, I think. I'd quite like to see Sterling play behind Kane and Rashford as a front two, with Sterling given a bit more freedom to go either side. I think that's where we played at the last World Cup, um, when he was much better than anyone else for England, even though he was basically still a child. And I think you want to give Sterling as much responsibility and creative freedom as possible. And to have Rashford alongside him, alongside Kane even stretching defences, I think that would be a really dangerous place to go. However, Rashford also could be a really dangerous option from the bench. So I think it's it's a tricky one for Southgate. I think Rashford could be an asset either side, but I think they need to use him carefully because it's all about making sure that his confidence is right. Yeah, certainly one to watch an eye on there as well. Uh, that will do it for us today, though. Thanks, you guys, so much for coming on. If you'd like to tell people where they could find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Thanks for having me on the show. You can find me on Twitter at Dylan Ivel. I also just want to give a shout-out for um, the Portugal podcast. I have nothing to do with them, but they're a real quality blog and podcast covering Portuguese football. So any interest in that, go, go have a look at them. Yeah, I've been Jamie Smith. Thanks for having me on. I'm going to be covering the World Cup for Omnisport News and you can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Smith Sports. I'm uh, Thomas Nygren. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas Nygren and I uh, usually write about Liverpool for uh, lfcsv.se. They won't be... I will probably write about uh, our Liverpool players in the World Cup, not so much about Sweden, but... Uh, if you want to know how Dejan Lovren is doing in the World Cup, you can visit our page. All right, thanks again for joining us. It was a pleasure as always. We hope you keep listening.